Sanctions halt rewards for bug hunters in Belarus and Russia. And lessons learned from data breaches, the winners and the losers. These stories and more on this week's ISMG Security Report. Hello, I'm Anna Delaney. How is Russia's invasion of Ukraine impacting security researchers based in Belarus and Russia who are signed up with bug bounty programs? Jeremy Kirk, Managing Editor of Security and Technology, investigates. Sanctions levied against Russia and Belarus for the invasion of Ukraine are affecting security researchers in those countries who are signed up with bug bounty programs. Some of the sanctions are directed at banks and financial institutions, and Western companies can no longer legally send payments. It means researchers who are due payments as a reward for finding and responsibly disclosing security issues may not get paid until those sanctions are lifted. Sanctions aren't a perfect tool, and their effects can reach people who don't have decision-making roles or influence and may very well oppose Russia's invasion. The situation is already proving frustrating for researchers, including one in Belarus who says he's opposed to the war. The person describes himself as a male in his 20s. His name can't be revealed because he's publicly expressed opposition to the war in Ukraine, and that can get one in trouble in Belarus. He signed up with HackerOne, which is one of the popular bug bounty platforms. On Sunday, he tweeted that he was owed more than $25,000 by HackerOne, but that money will be held until sanctions are lifted. Other bug bounty platforms, including BugCrowd and Integrity, are also holding payments that are due to hackers. Casey Ellis is BugCrowd's founder, chairman, and CTO. He says the sanctions are affecting payment provider availability and that he feels bad for the researchers affected. Belgium-based Integrity says it's withdrawn all bug bounty programs for its Russia-based clients and other regions affected by sanctions. It says it can't make either PayPal payments or payments to Russian bank accounts. Russian researchers, however, can still contribute to programs, and those payments will be held for at least two years. The researcher in Belarus says his security work through HackerOne was his sole income. Last year, he says he made around $50,000 finding security issues. He says job opportunities are declining in Belarus since many companies in the country work with foreign clients, and now those clients are cutting ties with Belarus due to the conflict. But he tells me over Twitter that overall, he says he'll be fine, and he realizes that some people have it far worse right now. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Jeremy Kirk. You're listening to the ISMG Security Report on ISMG Radio. ISMG, your number one source for information security news. What are top lessons that others can learn from data breaches? Well, joining me to discuss is Matthew Schwartz, executive editor for our own site, Data Breach Today, as well as our European coverage. Matt, you spoke earlier this week at a UK cybersecurity training summit on embedding lessons learned from data breaches. What were some of the lessons you shared? Well, Anna, I just have to be upfront about this. One of the lessons is how wrong I have been in the past. So I've been covering data breaches for a long time now, really since California's pioneering data breach notification law kicked off all the fun back in 2003. And I thought that with this law, that required breached businesses that inadvertently or otherwise exposed customers' personally identifiable information, that this would drive businesses to do better, to get their cybersecurity act together and to banish data breaches for good. 
That way, they never ever have to say they got hacked or notify victims that their data got exposed. So therein lies the problem with forecasting the future. Obviously, my predictions have failed to come to pass in spectacular fashion. So instead, I've retreated to safer ground, which is to look at what has happened and what others can and should learn to better protect themselves when it comes to data breaches. So to boil down a much longer discussion on some lessons to be learned from data breaches, one of my big takeaways to attendees was the repeat importance of crisis communications. So did you highlight examples of this that were well done or even poorly done? Well, so as to not look relentlessly negative, I tried for the sandwich, right? Little good, little bad, little good, because anyone can fall victim to an online attack. Speaking as a consumer, taking off my journalist hat for a second, I always look at how organizations attempt to inform me or to inform others if I was in that sort of position. And so first up in my good books is the Scottish Environmental Protection Agency, or SEPA. Now, they suffered a kind of incident that you never, ever want to suffer, which is a ransomware attack that detonates on Christmas Eve, specifically 2020 in this case. They were hit by the Conti Ransomware Group, which continues to be extremely active and subjected to the typical double extortion, where SEPA said, we're not going to pay. So Conti said, all right, we're going to list you on our data leak site, name and shame you. SEPA said, we're still not going to pay. Conti said, all right, we're going to leak your data. And eventually they leaked all the data. Kudos to SEPA for not paying. Instead, they took the money and they're using it to rebuild their systems. Unfortunately, they're still rebuilding their systems. And they were upfront that it could take years actually to overhaul everything. But again, kudos to them for taking the high road. Now, SEPA did a great job of early and often updating not only the public, but also its staff in terms of there having been a problem and that it was being addressed. Now, a big takeaway here is the public doesn't need full details of what happened or how the organization is responding. And indeed, under GDPR, under the breach notifications in the States, that is not the sort of detail that you are required to provide to the public. Notifications exist to help them protect themselves, typically against the threat of identity theft. But they also serve, when done right, to offer reassurance. And the same goes inside an organization. It is essential for morale that there are frequent, clear communications about what's being done. A lot of people are going to think, well, I have a job after this data breach. Is this going to shut down the organization? So this is crisis communications when it's well practiced, knowing how to respond in a way that's going to reassure people that you have the problem in hand and you're dealing with it in a straightforward manner. And Matt, if SEPA was in your good books, who was on your naughty list? Well, if I had an award to give for could have done better in the last 12 months, it would go to British high street retailer Fatface. So it fell victim to a ransomware attack. Also, Conti, also in the same time frame, January 2021. And attackers stole 200 gigs of data, including employees' bank details and national insurance numbers, as well as customer data. And the attack came to light publicly in March 2021 via a data breach notification sent to victims. Now, this is a really strange one, as we reported at the time. 
The email for the notification read, strictly private and confidential notice of security incident. That was the subject line. So I reached out to the company and said, there's people on social media going, what is this? Like the worst cover up ever. You send people an email that says strictly private and confidential. We've lost your data. How did you not expect that to become the talk of the town, right? It's all over social media. So Fat Face responded to me that, oh, well, we meant this literally. It was only for the intended recipient. Obviously, they really got off on the wrong foot there. And I think if you are going to send out a breach notification, one of the things you should do is think, is this the sort of notification that I would like to receive? Nobody likes to receive it, but that you would be well disposed, perhaps, as opposed to thinking, what were they thinking? So subsequently for Fatface, it got worse. Unlike SEPA, they admitted to paying a ransom worth $2 million to the Conti ransomware gang. In Fatface's favor, they had cyber insurance. So they didn't actually end up paying most of what did get paid. Unfortunately, they did pay the criminals who attacked them, which only perpetuates the business model. That's another discussion. But this incident with Fatface is a reminder that if you want to handle a breach well, you need to prepare in advance. Do you want to send out a subject line email that says strictly private and confidential? I'll say maybe you want to put that to a focus group and see if they respond well or not. This all speaks to the importance of planning and practice, having good incident response plans, running tabletop exercises. So if you get hit by a crypto locking malware attack, say on Christmas Eve, what happens next? Do you know who to call? Do you have a printout of who to call because your systems have been locked? If you're fat face, do you have, I don't know, a crisis communications firm on retainer that can help you craft your message? These are the sorts of questions organizations should be asking in advance. Practicing through these responses with tabletop exercises and well-crafted plans to identify what works, what doesn't work. And when it doesn't work in an exercise fashion, find out why. Work backwards and address it so that when it happens for real, you're ready to handle it. Thanks, Matt. I hope organizations around the world are listening to you to avoid ever being on your naughty list. I would love for nothing more. Thank you, Anna. And finally, we have a new cybersecurity talk show called Proof of Concept on our site. This is where our senior vice president of editorial, Tom Field, and I are joined by experts to discuss important themes of today and tomorrow. Here's a clip from a recent recording with one of our guests, Jeremy Grant, coordinator of the Better Identity Coalition, in response to this question. What's the reality of passwordless authentication today? I think we're doing pretty well, and I'm actually really excited about some things we might see rolling out late spring, early summer, coming out of the FIDO Alliance ecosystem that I think is going to make it a lot easier. Passwordless authentication, you know, part of it is that the term's just confusing to people. What does it mean? I mean, to be done right, it's passwordless multi-factor authentication. And I think, you know, what the FIDO standards have done is, you know, been to eliminate the knowledge factor in favor of something you are, a on-device biometric match that unlocks a cryptographic, you know, key pair that's, a, you know, based on asymmetric public key cryptography to log you in behind the scenes. Essentially gives you all the security benefits of PKI with a lot less of the hassles. So you're seeing that already supported you know, you can't go buy a device running Windows, iOS, Mac OS, Chrome, Android today that doesn't support FIDO out of the gate. I think where we have 
not quite gotten everybody to truly use this as a default to replace passwords is there still have been some usability challenges, particularly, you know, if it's one private key and I've got five devices, does it mean I need to get a different public private key pair for every device that I use? And so not to front run a, a FIDO announcement that I'm expecting later this spring, but there's some really interesting work going on in the Alliance right now that I think is going to essentially take this usability challenge. And, and by the way, I'd say it's a usability challenge, both for the end user as well as anybody who's trying to administer authentication accounts and make it a lot easier. I think 2022, 2023 is going to be the year where when you sign up for a new account online, rather than be asked to create a password, you'll just be asked to create what Apple and others have started calling a pass key that will log you in without a password behind the scenes and bring some real advances in both security and user experience. That's it from the ISMG Security Report. Theme music is by Ithaca Audio. I'm Anna Delaney. Until next time. Thank you.